Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode is focused on water. We have two stories from our ongoing coverage of the Colorado River. Stay with us to learn more. It's Monday, November 28th. The Colorado River is drying up. Communities that rely on it are already feeling the pinch. Many large cities throughout the Southwest are well-positioned to weather the coming crisis. But for some small towns like Page, Arizona, the threat of losing their water supply completely is no longer hypothetical. K1C's Alex Hager reports. Tobin Pilot walks across a crunchy patch of red dirt and pulls out his keys. Let's see, I'm coming here too often. I'm just guessing which key it is. Hey, first try. <laughs> pilot is with the city of Page's water department, and he's opening the door to a tiny wood-paneled shed. We're on the edge of a cliff, standing on dusty desert rock that towers above the Colorado River. This is the town's water comes right through this shack. (laughs) Crazy to think. This shed is tiny but important. Here, water comes up from the river hundreds of feet below and enters the pipes that feed the homes, hotels, and restaurants in this tourist town. What it does is there's a pipeline that is bored through the cliff of Glen Canyon, and then as it comes, it comes to the edge just past us here and goes straight up and then into another pipeline that goes up to our water plant. But that system is under threat. Page gets its water from Lake Powell, the nation's second-largest reservoir. It's held back by the Glen Canyon Dam, a 700-foot-tall behemoth. And inside the dam, there's a pipe that sucks water up to the little shed and onto the city. But drought and steady demand have drained the reservoir to a near-record low, putting Page's drinking water system in jeopardy. They never anticipated the the lake actually dropping down to a level where they weren't going to be able to generate or where Page was going to struggle to get water. Brian Hill is the city's utility manager. That just simply wasn't anticipated. That's why we're scrambling to make a a design mod down there now. He's talking about reworking the pipes inside the dam. If the river drops below the current intake, it would flow through a backup, even lower down. In the dam, a team of welders is working on new pipes to link that backup to Page. But Hill says Page won't have peace of mind without more upgrades. If the system in the dam fills for any reason, water stops flowing from city taps. What they need, he says, is a second straw, a little further upstream, that would provide redundancy. But that won't come cheap. It's roughly a $46 million project, and as you can imagine, you're not going to get that kind of money out of, out of 3,500 water customers. That's just not going to happen. Hill gets that cost estimate from a 2004 study from the Bureau of Reclamation, the federal agency that manages the dam. It's so expensive to do it because of where we live. A town our size couldn't do it on our own. We would have to have help. And so we're seeking that help, but that hasn't come yet. 
Hill says the federal government should be on the hook for that help. The city of Page only exists because of the dam. It was set up in the late 50s as a place to house the workers that Reclamation hired to build it. Hill says that history means federal officials should bear some responsibility for making sure the city has adequate water supply. For its part, Reclamation says it's committed to working with the city of Page and offering assistance, but hasn't yet drawn up plans to distribute the $4 billion it received from the Inflation Reduction Act, which became law this summer. But the region's water supply problems don't stop at Page. Climate change means that the flows of the Colorado River will continue to diminish. Catherine Sorensen is the former director of the Phoenix Water Department. Now she researches water policy at Arizona State University. And so for those communities that are dependent on Colorado River, they need to be looking around at their infrastructure, their alternative supplies, and developing means to be able to continue safe, reliable deliveries at the tap. And around the region, it's not just climate change putting city water supplies at risk. Sorensen says infrastructure around the Southwest is getting old. So I think you're going to see pressures from both sides. And I think that that might be really humbling for some of our communities. And whether the money comes from federal coffers or increased water rates, Sorensen says small towns and big cities alike will need to react quickly to steal their systems against climate change. In Page, Arizona, I'm Alex Hager. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the water in the West, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The Colorado River's foundational legal document turns 100 years old this month. The agreement among seven western states was groundbreaking for its time. But as KUNC's Luke Runyon reports, it continues to contribute to the Southwest's water crisis. Eric Kuhn walks along a gravel path above the Colorado River in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. The river below is turbid and choppy as it winds its way through town past Hot Springs Resorts and Whitewater Outfitters. Here we are about a whole 150 miles downstream of the headwaters of the Colorado River. Kuhn is the former head of the Colorado River District, a water agency based on the state's western slope. He's the co-author of the book Science Be Damned, a detailed examination of how the river's foundational agreement, the Colorado River Compact, came together a century ago. When I think of rivers, I think of, well, where's... Where's the water coming from and where's it going? And what's happened to this river over the last 100 years? In the 19-teens, European settlers were moving into some of the most arid reaches of the country. The Southwest was rapidly developing. But one thing was missing, a stable water supply. The river's flows were extreme, transitioning quickly from flood to drought. Kuhn says fledgling western states saw the river as a problem to solve. We needed to control nature. We needed to uh, figure out a way to make this river from a menace to a natural resource. That mentality is what brought leaders from those states and the federal government to Santa Fe in 1922 to hammer out the agreement. It divided up the river's water and promised the states a fixed amount to use. Kuhn says the negotiators chose political expediency over science. If we, everyone agrees that there's enough water to meet all our needs, dividing it up is going to be very easy. If there's not enough water, 
then it's going to create complications. We're 100 years later, and obviously our priorities are different than the priorities of the people who existed at that time. Kathy Jacobs is a water policy professor at the University of Arizona. The priority then was irrigation water for the Southwest's small farms. They weren't thinking of what a future Phoenix metro area might need, or how their decisions would affect the Grand Canyon's ecosystems. I don't think that it's particularly flexible, and we're in a situation where flexibility will probably be key. And that inflexibility is still being felt today, Jacob says. Because more water exists on paper than in the river, its biggest reservoirs, Lakes Mead and Powell, continue to decline to record lows. For Heather Tanana, a University of Utah law professor and citizen of the Navajo Nation, the compact also represents how indigenous people have been excluded from river management over time. Water for many tribes, it's not a commodity. It's something sacred. It's something that's integral to not just human life, but the broader community and environmental well-being. Collectively, tribes hold rights to more than 20% of the river's water, but only recently have calls for a tribal seat at the negotiating table been seriously considered by the states and the federal government. That's been a shift in the last, really, I think, five years of recognizing tribal interests, their legal rights, and beyond that, that tribes can be a part of problem solving. So with all of its flaws, why would anyone want to keep using the compact? Well, Kevin Wheeler, a river management fellow at the University of Oxford in the UK, says more water leaders are choosing to ignore some of the compact's math. Newer agreements show some willingness to cut back on overall water use voluntarily. Even though no individual state wants to take the hit, They all recognize the need to take the hit together. And what the compact serves as now, he says, is a way to keep all of the users returning to the negotiating table. What's often been said is we're not going to get rid of it, but we may have to bend the hell out of it to make it work. And figure out a way to bend it before the whole system breaks. I'm Luke Runyon in Grand Junction, Colorado. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by K1C and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. That's all for today on Colorado Edition. Thanks for listening. The Colorado Edition podcast is posted every Friday. Just hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If there's a story you'd like to hear, send us an email at coloradoedition at kunc.org. Our theme music is composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Other music in the show by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda.